We would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which Wirroni is created. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that the name Wirroni was taken from the Wadiwadi Nation without permission and we are striving to do better for future reconciliation. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Space Space. I'm Annika. Hi, can you hear? Yes, okay, I can hear. My name's Brad. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't hear myself before starting. I was like, oh, is this broken? Well, that's because no. I didn't have the microphone yes, up. okay, everything's fine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we're, we're all good. All right, let's start with some space news. Yes. After 10 months of flying in space, NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, the world's first planetary defense technology demonstration, successfully impacted its asteroid target on Monday, the agency's first attempt to move an asteroid in space. Are they slowly building up to trying to move the Earth? No. I think that's where it's going. No, why do we want to move the Earth? Because we're too close to the sun. No, we really are. We need to move the Earth, (laughs) so this is the reason. No. (laughs) There's got to be a reason. (laughs) Congratulations, it's been 30 seconds and you've already spread misinformation. (laughs) (laughs) New record. Actually, the idea is that NASA was testing methods of deflecting potentially dangerous asteroids from hitting Earth. Yeah. As a part of NASA's overall planetary defense strategy, DART's impact with the asteroid Dimorphos demonstrates a viable mitigation technique for protecting the planet from Earth-bound asteroids or comets, if one was ever discovered. DART targeted the asteroid Moonlit, which is just a small moon, Dimorphos, a small body just 160 meters in diameter. It orbits a larger 780-meter asteroid called um, Didymos. Neither asteroid poses an actual threat to Earth, but... um, This is testing. The mission's one-way trip confirmed NASA can successfully navigate a spacecraft to intentionally collide with an asteroid to deflect it, a technique known as kinetic impact. Ah, I see. Yeah. You know, I'm realizing that I can hear a lot better today. I'm not sure why. Like, I'm really hearing myself today. Usually I can't hear anything, but I can hear. I I haven't turned your microphone up any higher than it normally is. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting my hearing back again. (laughs) You need to see a doctor. Yes, that's probably a good idea. (laughs) The uh, the investigation team will now observe dimorphos using ground-based telescopes to confirm that DART's impact altered the asteroid's orbit around Didymos. Researchers expect the impact to shorten dimorphos orbit by about 1% or roughly 10 minutes. Precisely measuring how much the asteroid was deflected is one of the primary purposes of the full-scale test. On a planetary scale, this could mean the difference between a disaster and a new miss. Are they, okay, are they doing this because they're just preparing or are they predicting an asteroid collision? They're just preparing. Okay, right. Yeah. Right. Um, previously, NASA's planetary defense strategy was not actually that advanced. Let's just hold it up. <laughs> just push it away. <laughs> no, I remember having a discussion with my physics teacher in high school once about ah. planetary defense strategies, and this was back in like 2019 or that sort of thing. And um, he was like, oh, yeah, there's like one measly team that kind of deals with this, and that's about it. And by the time that we see them, it's probably a little too late. Shoot it with lasers. <laughs> <laughs> How about you do that while the world is panicking? You can shoot it with lasers. I'll be Earth's last defense. <laughs> right at the front lines. <laughs> Isn't there a movie about like about um, a- an asteroid hitting Earth? Look, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I saw a joke about it, but I don't remember. 
Anyway, not spectacularly advanced. The total no- known um, near-Earth asteroids doubled from 2013 to 2016. Oh, geez. So this means that before 2013, we didn't know that much, did we? Well, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Tracking and logging of near-Earth objects only began in 1989. Sorry, 1998. Right. Plenty of things have happened before then. I see, okay. While no known asteroid larger than 140 meters in size has a significant chance of hitting Earth for the next 100 years, only about 40% of those asteroids have been found. Ah. So, yeah. Asteroid impacts are a continuously occurring natural process. Every day, 80 to 100 tons of material falls upon Earth from space in the form of dust and small meteorites, which we discussed last week. You did. How do they know it's 40%? Because like, they haven't found them all, so how do they know it's 40%? You know what? I'm not actually sure. I feel like we'd be able to predict it based on the, de- uh, the like, I suppose, density of um, asteroids around our area or a similar environment in the Milky Way. Ah, okay. Yeah. Or just them being optimistic. Mm. There's other things. Like, obviously, we, uh, we know that asteroids can come from places, uh, from all sorts of different places. Ah. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Over the past 20 years, the U.S. government sensors have detected nearly 600 very small asteroids a few meters in size that have entered the Earth's atmosphere and created spectacular blides. Oh, it's fireballs. They've created fireballs. Uh, <laughs> what was that word you were trying to say? <laughs> I wrote it down, and I clearly didn't think about how I was going to pronounce it because I've never seen this word before. Nice. <laughs> They're fireballs. Yes. Experts estimate that an impact of an object about the size of the one that exploded over... Oh, go ahead. Um, Shalyabinsk in in Russia (laughs) in 2013, which was about 17 meters in size, takes place once or twice a century. We prepared for this. (laughs) Yeah, we prepared for this. I didn't write this this morning. (laughs) That was that though that um, that asteroid in Russia was actually a huge event. I think. A lot of us were a little too young to remember that one. When was that? Um, 2013. 2013. But thousands of people were affected by the shockwave, injured, and that sort of thing. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, that was in year six. Yeah. That was in year five. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) However, given the current incompleteness of near-Earth object catalogs, an unpredicted impact such as the one we were discussing before could occur at any time. Ah, Okay. So we need to be prepared. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Unpredicted. Right. Because basically what we're doing is we're trying to find all of these asteroids that and track where their orbits are oh, and see, see whether it collides with Earth's orbit. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So if we know about it, since asteroids are pretty predictable um, if they have a clear path and they're semi-regular... So if we know about them, then we can at least plan for them. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. But if we don't know that they exist, it's kind of hard to plan for that one. Yeah. Yeah. An example of a worrying asteroid is um, Bennu. Uh, asteroid Bennu orbits the sun every one to 1.2 years and makes a relatively close approach to Earth about every six years. Bennu has been measured by planetary radar and is roughly spherical with an equatorial bulge. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> its average diameter is about 492 meters. We'll keep out, look out for that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, by definition, we call we call Benno a potentially hazardous asteroid. I see. Or a PHA. PHA. A PHA is an asteroid whose orbit is predicted to 
bring it within 0.05 astronomical units, which is about 8 million kilometers Ooh. of Earth's orbit, and is a size large enough to re- reach Earth's surface. Because yes. if we have an asteroid that's too small, then it will burn up in our atmosphere. Yep. Um, the potential for an asteroid to make a close approach to Earth doesn't mean that it will impact Earth, but we still have to monitor these because if it does, we might all die. Right. Um, yes. By monitoring PHAs and updating their orbits as new observations are made, observers can improve their predictions of the risk of impacting Earth. Sometimes the term potentially hazardous object or PHO is used to destroy, describe an asteroid or comet that meets this criteria. Ah, Okay. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory Centre for NEO Studies has predicted that the future orbital movements of Bennu based on 29 radar observations and 478 optical observations of the asteroid conducted by trackers around the world between September 1999 and January 2011. Hmm. Um, This predicts that the next time that Bennu will pass Earth within Moon's orbit will be 2135. That's a while. It is. Yes. This particularly close approach will change Bennu's orbit by a small amount, which is uncertain at this time, but may lead to a potential impact on Earth sometime between 2175 and 2199. Hmm. The calculated cumulative risk of this um, between this 24-year period is about 1 in 2,700 chance, Hmm. which doesn't sound bad, but on an astronomical scale, that's a little worrying. But... uh, Rest assured, you'll probably be dead then. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but with the success of missions like NASA's DART mission, we know that we are able to deflect asteroids yeah. like this. So yeah. hopefully, that means in the future we will be more prepared for a potential collision. Yeah, I feel like if you're on a team of astrophysics or physicists working at NASA, you can't really micromanage because all your predictions are like years into the future after you're dead. Yeah, so you have no, to trust all your research into uh, a future team. Yeah, exactly. Like um, long, uh, a lot of space missions like Voyager, which we talked about a few weeks ago, yep. are very long-term. The people who worked on it are dead. Yeah. So, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it does mean a limit. Human life is a really limiting factor when it comes to space discoveries. For a lot of things, actually, yes. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> but things like how we can't travel faster than the speed of light means that we can't really travel anywhere um, that's too far away. Has anyone it. tried? No. Ah, the so f- how do you know? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know if you don't try. <laughs> Currently, the furthest man-made object from Earth, I think, is the Voyager 1 spacecraft, which was launched before the Voyager 2 spacecraft mm. by a few days. And it's kind of on the outskirts of the solar system at the moment. Okay. Oh, cool. And it's taken like 45 years to get there. Yes. And okay. we only really figured out how to send people into space like 80 odd years ago. Yes. So, yeah, we're not that far out yet. Mm. But hopefully. Uh, I don't know. There maybe maybe there's a way to travel faster than the speed of light, which would be ridiculous and would break physics. But you know, cool. it would be it would be pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the topic that we will be covering today in today's podcast uh, is unsolved mysteries in astrophysics. Oh. There are many <laughs> things that astrophysicists don't know about the universe, such as if there are aliens out there. That's that's a big one, actually. Mm. I mean, the likelihood of there being aliens is actually pretty high, given yes. there are 
billions and billions of galaxies, yep. billions and billions of stars, mm-hmm. and a lot of stars have planets around them. Uh-huh. There's bound to be one with the right conditions for life as we yeah. know it on Earth or potentially yeah. other forms of life. Hmm. Like everybody says silicon-based life, but I don't actually know that much about it. So, ah. Oh, cool. Silicon-based life. Yeah, so we're carbon-based life, yeah. right? Yeah. There's obviously the possibility that there's life that is based on a different element. You know, th- you know those like little tubes that you can get full of silicon that you squeeze to like cover cracks and oh, all that. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine like destroying a human. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fairness, like <coughs> graphite is made of carbon. It would be the same thing as saying, "Oh, I could draw a stick figure with oh, graphite." Yes, oh my god, it's a carbon-based <laughs> being. It's uh, elements come in many different uh, different forms. <laughs> okay. One of my favorite unsolved mysteries of the universe is um, th- is this type of star called a magnetar. And basically, magnetar. magnetars are a type of neutron star with a ridiculous magnetic field. Oh, okay. So the magnetic field of a typical magnetar lies between 1 to 100 billion Tesla. And to bring that into perspective, the maximum magnetic field that can be generated under special laboratory conditions is mm-hmm. about a few hundred Tesla. Right. Or we can we can use another um, measurement system, the Gauss. The Gauss. Um, the Earth's magnetic field is about one Gauss. Okay. The average uh, magnetic field of a normal neutron star is about a trillion Gauss, but the um, the average magnetic field of a magnetar is a quadrillion Gauss. That's a lot of Gauss. And consider that Earth already has a strong-ish magnetic field compared to other planets in our solar system, hence why we haven't really died from like a solar flare or anything Ah, like that yet. Yeah. So just like neutron stars, um, magnetars are about 20 kilometers wide and have about a mass about two to three times that of the sun. So they're quite dense. Mm -hmm. Similarly, neutron stars, you know how there's the whole thing of a teaspoon, a spoon of mass from a neutron star would weigh more than all the people on Earth. Yes. Oh. So a teaspoon of um, a magnetized material would weigh about 100 million tons. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, you would not be able to carry that. No, not even close. The origin of such a strong magnetic field is hypothesized to be a magnetohydrodynamic process in the turbulent, extremely dense conducting fluid that exists before the neutron star settles into its equilibrium position. It's a really big word. Say it again. Yeah. Magnetohydrodynamic. Magnetohydrodynamic. You can break it up. Yes. Magne- yes. Magneto being magnet, yep. hydro being fluid, yep. dynamic being like moving. movement. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. The magnetic field of a magnetar would be lethal at a, but even a distance of about 1,000 kilometers due to the strong magnetic field distorting the electron clouds at the subject's constituent atoms, rendering chemistry of life impossible. Yes. Essentially, we're stripping um, yeah. electrons away from the atoms that make up you and it would be gross a lot of this sounds pretty solved to me right now so we'll get there (laughs) we'll get there (laughs) at a distance of halfway from the earth to the moon a magnetar could strip information from the most powerful magnetic stripes of all credit cards on earth oh my gosh yeah you know how you you don't put really pay for stuff with that thing (laughs) you know like don't put your credit card near um near magnets because otherwise it could wipe all the information oh yes Similar process, yeah. Except okay. the magnetar would on, uh, would be like at the moon. Yes, that would not be nice. So, as of um, now, ish, they're about the most powerful magnetic objects detected throughout the universe. 
Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty strong magnet. But <laughs> how how could it ever be that magnetic? Think about it. Okay, so a neutron star is made out of neutrons, right? Yes. And what is the charge of a neutron? Um, wait, zero. Right. Yeah. So how can a star that is neutral, made of neutral atoms, well, neutral subatomic particles, be charged? Ooh. That seems a little strange. There yeah. are a st- still a few protons hanging out um, in the star. So at incredible densities, physics gets complicated and it has some charge. But it still doesn't explain why it's so ridiculously large. Yeah, that's weird. There's things about how um, the spin of a magnetar could cause it to be to amplify its magnetic field. And obviously when you condense something that already has a large magnetic field down into something smaller than that small object has a larger magnetic field. Ah. It's kind of like when, like density. If we if we crush it down, then an object becomes more dense. Right. Wait, so how do they know it's a magnetic field, not like a gravitational field? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. I feel like we'd be... if. Why would it be gravitational? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now I'm confused. Okay. <laughs> See? Mystery. Mystery. I'm confused. Confused. <laughs> confused. Physics is really complicated. Yes. Um, if you. D- <laughs> oh, here's my analogy for the magnetic field. Okay. Um, take a star's normal magnetic field and squish it. Okay. Every time you squish, you get a stronger field, just like you get higher densities. Right. And we're squishing something from small uh, star size, like a million kilometers, to city size like 25 kilometers. Yes. Plus, with all the interesting physics that happens in interiors, complex processes can operate to amplify the magnetic field. Still, not really sure how that gets us to a quadrillion gauss. Yeah, that's a lot of gauss. Is the plural for gauss just gauss or is it gausses? I'm not really sure. Gauss. Gauss? I think gauss sounds right. Gauss, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of gauss. Well, gauss is the name of a person. Oh, that's so. true. It would be a name of a But person. then we say, yeah. like, for example, Tesla. We can say multiple Teslas. Teslas. Yeah. Because there's, like, more than one person in the family, right? So you can say, like, the multiple Tams or multiple Chans. That's true, but we yes. have nice names with consonants at the end that, that is true. are closed. Gauss. I don't know. <laughs> English is fascinating. I Yay. don't know enough about this it. This is not an English podcast no. and we are not English speakers. No. So moving Wait, on. Wait, hang on, hang on. No, 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 no. No, we are English speakers. <laughs> but yes, magnetars are cool. And they might also be the source for our next mystery. Fast radio bursts. Fast radio bursts. So FRBs are unresolved broadband, so like spanning a range of radio frequencies, um, millisecond flashes found in parts of the sky. Mm -hmm. The physical phenomenon that causes these bursts is still a mystery. Possible sources are neutron stars, black holes, or extraterrestrial intelligence. Wait, hold on. Break that down. Say that again. All of it. (laughs) (laughs) So basically what it is, is we've got these... um, Radio bursts are just a pulse of radio waves that we detect for a few milliseconds. Yes. And they span a range of wavelengths in the radio spectrum of the um, electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah. 
and they're very strange because sometimes they're reg- uh, they're regular. It it is as if you have tuned on your radio, right? And you're suddenly picking up this weird signal from somewhere that you haven't accounted for, yes. and it makes absolutely no sense. You have no idea where it's coming from. I had a pair. I used to have a pair of walkie-talkies actually. Yeah. And it was tuned onto a channel that I think police officers were also tuned onto. Oh my gosh! So we were hearing conversations from police officers. We were like, oh, we have to turn this off. <laughs> this is not something we can be listening to. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty impressive for a walkie-talkie you were able to uh, I literally, yourself. I got it from, uh, remember that Remember that shop that used to be around Australian Geographic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got it's it from around, there. It's still around, isn't it? I think so. I just, I don't remember. Yeah. But I got it from there. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously they got it from there as well. <laughs> Clearly. Okay. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Anyway, we think that these um, radio bursts may be from things like neutron stars, black holes potentially, or the... The fun answer is that it's, it's from, from aliens. It's from an alien. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's similar to um, when pulsars were first discovered, which is basically the star that um, has um, light jetting out from its poles. Yeah. And as it rotates, we can see it kind of flash at us like yes. like a flash. Yeah. Not a, what's it called? Like a lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, when they were discovered, uh, the... The woman who discovered it, um, Dame Jocelyn Bell, mm. she coined it "Little Green Men" because oh, oh yes, that's right. Yes, because yeah. it was it was really regular and to the point where it may have been alien life. Ah. So it seems that for any signal that is regular and unknown, we just kind of blame aliens. Another question: Why yes. is black? Why 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 is one of the explanations black holes? Because nothing can come out of it, right? So how, mm-hmm. how are they detecting anything from it? Or how do they think they're detecting anything from it? Well, we, you've got to consider that we also don't know that much black ho- about black okay, holes. Okay, true. They were theoretical pretty much until when we were able to photograph one, which I think was in April of 2020. Oh, yeah, not long ago. Yeah. So we're still learning a lot of things about them. Oh There's gosh. things like Hawking radiation, which we only got a grasp of just as Stephen Hawking was passing away yes. in 2017 yep. or 2018, which actually we'll discuss later. Okay. But, yeah, yeah. Um, Basically, these radio bursts um, are much larger than expected for something that may be coming from our own galaxy. So we think that it might be coming from outside the galaxy. But then in April of 2020, we found one that originated from our own galaxy. And that made no sense. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, on the black holes thing, one uh, possible explanation is that they are a collision between very dense objects like black holes or neutron stars. Right. It's been suggested that there's a connection to gamma ray bursts, which you can put the, put it together. It's a burst of gamma rays. Um, some have speculated that these signals might be artificial in origin, and that's where you get all of your all of your alien stuff. Ah, um, that's pretty wild. Yeah, in 2007, just after the publication of the ePrint with the first discovery of um, fast radio bursts, it was proposed that they could be related to hyperflares of magnetars. In 2015, three studies supported the magnetar hypothesis. The identification of the first FBR, FRB, from the Milky Way um, was uh, said to originate from a magnetar. Ah. So perhaps magnetars are the cause. Maybe. Hmm. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Long story short, we're very confused about where these bursts are coming from. Unsolved. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Mythbusters, but not as good. Possibly <laughs> <laughs> unsolved, but for astrophysics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I don't have the personality of Shane. <laughs> okay, one more. Oh. 
So this is called the black hole information paradox. I watched a video on this. Did you? Yes. Tell us what you know. Not very much. <laughs> I, okay, I always watch these astrophysics videos because they're really cool. It's by I watched one by Kurtz Kazakt. Oh, we love. Yes, but I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> I always they always talk about cool things like oh this I understand this, but then I forget. It. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the interest is great. I know that it deletes information. But like then I don't remember how that. <laughs> that how sounds that like you've just gone to the computer and pressed wipe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's yep. in it's in uh, the universe's uh, recycling bin. <laughs> <laughs> can you fish it out? Yeah, so you can restore all items. <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, thirty days after you've thrown it out. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Otherwise, it gets wiped. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's not quite what it is, but. <laughs> Yeah. Solved. <laughs> Black hole is just a universe. Right, done. <laughs> Bye, everyone. This is it. <laughs> Not quite. The black hole information paradox is a puzzle that appears when the predictions of quantum mechanics and general relativity are combined. So basically, um, you may have heard of the theory of everything, which is this whole idea that we'll be able to explain the universe with one unified theory. I didn't realize that was a theory. I thought it was a movie. <laughs> No, I, I literally thought that. <laughs> No, it, it is a movie, but it's based on the fact that that's where the name comes from. Oh. Yeah. I thought it was just a cheesy line to a movie. <laughs> it, it just sounds like a movie. It, just do it doesn't sound like a theory. <laughs> it, it's a theory. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it, the problem is it doesn't exist because we've got quantum mechanics, which, dis uh, which describes things at a small scale at a quantum level. Yes. And we've also got general relativity, which explains things at a much larger scale but we can't put it together and make the maths work. Ah, I see. So that's an issue in itself. Right. But um, the theory of general relativity predicts the existence of black holes that are regions of space-time which come from nothing, which from nothing, not even light, can escape. We know this. Yes. In the 1970s, Stephen Hawking applied the rules of quantum mechanics to such systems and found that an isolated black hole would emit a form of radiation co uh, he called Hawking radiation. Ah. Hawking also argued that the detailed form of radiation would only be independent of the initial state of the black hole. So basically what we're saying is that we can... Um, wait, hang on. <laughs> so what we're saying is that no matter what happened to the black hole in the beginning, that's independent of what's happening now. I see. Which, um, And so it would only depend on its mass at the current point in time, mass, electric charge, and angular momentum. Right. The information paradox appears when one considers a process in which a black hole is formed through a physical process and then evaporates in away entirely through a Hawking radiation. Right. So basically, we've got black holes that are um, slow, like very, very slowly disintegrating. Uh, this okay. takes like trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions yes. of years. It takes a long time. Um, Hawking's calculations suggest that the final state of radiation which retain information only about the total mass, electric charge, and angular momentum. Since many different states can have the same mass, charge, and angular momentum, this suggests that many different initial states could have formed the same final state. Okay. But this means that the information about the initial state is lost. Because if we have a bunch of different things turning into one final thing, then we don't know anything about... The the different types of initial states we could have had. I see. Yeah. So that's where we have an information paradox. So We're losing like, information. So it's kind of like grandfather paradox. I, I suppose, sort of. Where you kill your own grandfather and you're like, oh, wh where am I? Well, that's why another I, paradox. Why do I still exist? Sort of. <laughs> 
Um, actually, one fun solution to this, um, which has been proposed in recent years, is wormholes. Yes, wormholes, theoretical bridges in space-time which connect two distant spots through a um, shortcut. So obviously this sounds like something out of a science fiction movie, mm-hmm. but they're real predictions of Einstein's yeah. general uh, theory of relativity. Yeah, I didn't realise they were still theoretical. Yeah. I thought they were a thing. No, they are definitely no, not a we thing. We haven't taken a photo of a wormhole yet, so obviously... It's a little difficult to do. Yes. Well, the hope, uh, the thought is that um, perhaps a wormhole could be connected to the from the inside of a black hole to the inside of another black hole, but we really don't have any evidence right. of this, and yeah. such such a connection would be really, yeah. really rare. Because in that lost podcast episode, no, uh, it's not a podcast; it's a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> in that lost episode, we talked about wormholes and how wormhole, uh, how black holes and white holes could be a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. What if, like? What if a person has actually fallen into a into a wormhole and just like <laughs> no one has noticed? You're still they really just, intent on falling into a black hole, aren't you? <laughs> well, they, they they just you know they just fell into it like oh where am I? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> well, so we have our three mysteries. Our three mysteries being our fast radio bursts, mm-hmm. our black hole information paradox, mm-hmm. and our oh what's the other one? Magnetars. Yes. And with that, we have to wrap up. Ah, okay. So I hope I've given you some brain food. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Astrophysics is cool. I Watch more Kyrgyzstat videos. Kyrgyzstat. <laughs> I don't really know how to pronounce it. It's Kirk... Kirk... Kirk's Kazakt. Kirk's Kazakt. In a nutshell. Yeah, in a nutshell. I yes. love that YouTube channel. Yes. It's just you never be able to pronounce it. Nope. Right. And with that, I am Brad. I like to learn things. I'm Annika. I try to teach things. <laughs> And this was the space space. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>